The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity and was recorded at Westminster Chapel in Toronto. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Good morning. It's uh, so good to be back. I've missed everyone, and it's uh, great to be with my brothers and sisters this morning. And I'm excited about what the Lord is going to open up to us in our text this morning. Now, the most important part of the sermon is the public reading of the Word of God. And um, so that's what we're going to do now. And of course, this won't be the first time that we've considered this because You'll have read it through the week, I'm sure. So our text is 2 Samuel, chapter 21. We're going to read the whole chapter. So let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Now there was famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike, strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, it is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. He said, what do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, whom she bore to Saul, Armani, and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillia, the Meholathite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had stolen them from the public square of Bashan where the Philistines had hanged them. On the day the Philistines killed Saul, on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged, and they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish his father, and they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with, their, with his servants, and they, brought against the Phili- and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary 
And Ishbi Binob, one of the descendants of the giant whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword, fought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was war with the Philistines at God. Then Sibachai, the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. There was again war with the Philistines at Gob, and Elhanah, the son of Jerorajim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. And he was also descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, before we consider this passage, let's ask for the Lord's help. God, our Father, we come now under the authority of your word. And we need your Holy Spirit to make it good to our hearts. We ask for help then in the worthy, the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, our study in the book of 2 Samuel, up until now, has traced, for the most part, the life and kingdom of David chronologically. I say, for the most part. But that all ended last week when we considered the 20th chapter. After the 20th chapter, the chronology comes to an end, and it doesn't pick up again until the first chapter of 1 Kings. Now, in between the 20th chapter and the first chapter of 1 Kings is a section of four chapters that are not chronological. They are a collection of some events that happened and some poetry, and they are put together there in the last four chapters of 2 Samuel. And I think it will be helpful for us before we consider over the next four or five weeks these chapters that we do a 30,000-foot flyover to get the context, to understand why the Spirit of God has recorded this section of Scripture, these four chapters, at the end here of 2 Samuel. So let's talk about these four chapters. They start with a famine, and they end with a plague. The famine is brought on by a problem that David inherited. The plague is brought on by a problem that David created. And they both, both of those stories end in a similar way. God responded to the plea for the land. The Lord responded to the plea for the land. Now, these are bookends. And wedged between these two stories are a song of David and the last words of David. 
Both are dedicated to the Lord's faithfulness. The Song of David is dedicated to God's faithfulness in the past, and the words, or the last words of David, are dedicated to God's faithfulness in the future, in fulfilling his promise to David that from his offspring will come a king who will reign forever in righteousness, who we know to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, that kingdom is in sharp contrast to the personal weakness and failure of David as the leader of Israel, illustrated by these two stories that are at the the start and the end, the famine and the plague. Now, the key to understanding this section of, of, of Scripture is found in some key verses that are right in the center of the 23rd chapter, right in the last words of David. And I'm going to read them to you, starting verse 3 of chapter 23. And I'm going to read them in the New King James Version because I think they make them a little bit clearer than our ESV. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. So in this section of scripture, we really have three kingdoms. The remnants of Saul's failed kingdom, a man devoted to his own glory. The struggles of David's kingdom, a man devoted to God's glory and helped by God's faithfulness but plagued by his own weaknesses. And the third kingdom, the coming kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will reign in righteousness forever and bring healing to the land and blessing to the people. So that's a synthesis of these four chapters. And the key to understanding, really, I think, the entire book, it deals with leadership, just leadership, ruling in the fear of God. And the implications both the good and the bad, the implications of good and bad leadership on the land and the people. Now, I don't think it's coincidental that we have come to our study in 2 Samuel, and particularly these four, um, these four chapters, at a time when we are faced in our society with a crisis of leadership crisis of leadership, a time when society is languishing under what some perceive to be a plague, and at a time in which our country and our province are weighed down by unprecedented levels of debt that threaten economic collapse, all of which I believe can be traced back to a failure to lead in the fear of God. And while we might hope that we could look to the church for leadership At a time like this, when we do, we find corresponding levels of decline, scandal, and general failure to lead in the fear of God. Now into that morass, into that crisis of leadership, the Lord reminds us in this section of four, this four chapter section of scripture, that it's not the first time that there has been a crisis of leadership. And that, the, that his faithfulness to his servant David is still available 
to those willing to lead in the fear of God and for the glory of God. Now, I've gone to some lengths to set this passage in its context, because as we have said before, at Westminster Chapel, we are committed to expository preaching. Expository preaching is when we come under the authority of the text. We don't put in what God has left out, and we don't leave out what God has put in. And there is a grave danger of doing just that if we don't place a passage within its context in Scripture. If we are going to understand or attempt to understand why God has placed a passage in Scripture and what we are to do about it, it is very important that we get its context. Now, let's remember that we are all expositors, expositors. It isn't just the preacher that does the work of exposition. We don't just come here and fall into a pew as spectators and give the sermon points based on brevity, humor, and personal relevance. That's not what we do, right? And one of the tools that we need to have to be good expositors is what I'm going to call good peripheral vision. Good peripheral vision. If you've ever been, maybe you were up at the cottage um, this summer for holidays, and if you've ever looked at the night sky, you look up there, and sometimes out of the corner of your eye, you catch the glimpse of a cluster of stars. But then when you look directly at it, it seems to just disappear. And then when you look again, just to the side of it, you'll pick it up again. And that's because, as I understand that our, our, um, our photoreceptors that are good at viewing dim light are located on the periphery of our retina. And so our uh, direct vision, what our direct vision can't pick up sometimes, our peripheral vision can pick up. Now this is true of Scripture as well. To understand a passage of Scripture, we need to see it within its overall context. That's why the, the Apostle Paul said to Timothy... Hold fast the pattern or have an outline of sound words which you have heard from me. This is why we encourage you to work through the scriptures in an orderly fashion so that you can get the flow of scripture, so that you can get an outline of scripture, so that you can get the context, so that when you read a passage and you don't understand it, you can place it in to the proper context. And this is why we have spent some time this morning to try to set this 21st chapter, a chapter about leadership, a chapter about leading in the fear of God within the context of this four-chapter section of Scripture. So that's the context. Now let's just get an overview of what we've had in the Scripture. There's been a famine in the land for three years straight. Finally, David goes to the Lord, and the Lord reveals to him that it's because of a covenant that has been broken by Saul with the Gibeonites. So David goes to the Gibeonites and asks them what they want him to do about this. And they, re- they ask that seven sons of Saul be given to them so that they can hang them before the Lord. David gives them. The Gibeonites put them to death and leave their bodies hanging for a considerable a period of time, presumably until the famine is over. Rizpah, the mother mother of two of the boys, stays by the bodies night and day 
and will not allow the birds or the beasts to desecrate them. Now, when David hears about this, it moves him to retrieve the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan and these seven unfortunate sons and to bury them and to give them a proper burial. It's after he does that that God responds to the plea for the land and the famine comes to an end. Now, after that, there is what seems to be an account that is disconnected from all of this. And I say it seems to be because I don't believe it is unrelated to this. It's an account of four Philistine giants being slain, one of whom is almost successful in taking David's life, an event that ends David's fighting career. So that's the overview of what we've had in this 21st chapter. So how does this all fit together? How does this all tie together? I'm going to try to give it to you in two sentences, and then we'll unpack it together. For David's kingdom to thrive, he had to accept for responsibility for certain problems he inherited from a previous generation. Problems that that previous generation was not equipped to deal with. He also had to release control of certain tasks to the next generation that he was not equipped to deal with. Did you get that? Let me say it one more time. For David's kingdom to thrive, he had to accept responsibility for certain problems that he inherited from the previous generation. Problems that that previous generation was not equipped to deal with. He also had to release control for certain problems to the next generations, problems that David himself was not equipped to deal with. Now, that's what leading in the fear of God requires, accepting responsibility and releasing control. And that's why I've called this sermon, Accepting Responsibility and Releasing Control. Now, to help you get a handle on this as we go through it, I'm going to go through this scripture And as I do, I'm going to try to break it down by answering three of the questions that I believe we had in last week's bulletin. So you will have already considered them. You will have already meditated on them. So this won't be the first time. Now, here's the three questions that we want to consider. Why did did God expect David to take responsibility for a problem that Saul created? That's the first question. Second question, was it right for David to deliver up these seven sons of Saul to the Gibeonites? And thirdly, what is the significance of David's close call with what I'm going to call a second-generation giant? Okay? One more time. Why Why did God expect David to take responsibility for a sin, a problem that Saul created? What was... Was it right for David to deliver up these seven sons of Saul to the Gibeonites? And what was the significance of David's close call with a second-generation giant? Let's take the first one. Why did God expect David to take responsibility for this problem that Saul had created with the Gibeonites? Well, 400 years earlier, Moses' successor, Joshua, had been tricked into making a covenant with the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites were not from Israel. They were from the Amorites, and they, were, they, were of the, they, they lived in the land of Canaan. They were, Can, they were Canaanites, and they were an idol, a, idolatrous nation. And God had instructed Joshua 
to rid the land of these people and of their idols. And he proceeded to do that. But to spare themselves, the Gibeonites hatched a scheme. They came to Joshua and they pretended to be from a far land. They pretended to be travelers from a far land. You know the story. They came in moldy bread and old shoes and everything like that. And they pretended to be coming from a far land and requested terms of peace. They requested that they could enter into a covenant with Israel. And without looking to the Lord, Joshua and the elders of Israel made that covenant. Three days later, they found out that they were near neighbors, that they were Canaanites. And so they came, the elders of Israel uh, came to them and to inquire about why they had lied like this, and they found out that it was because they wanted to avoid being um, destroyed. Now, I want you to hear, at the time, what the elders said when they realized that they had been tricked and were unable to fulfill God's command to drive out the Canaanites. Here's what they said. This is in Joshua 9. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, get this, let them live lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. The elders knew that to break a covenant with the Gibeonites, a covenant that was sworn in the name of the Lord, would bring wrath upon them. And the passage of 400 years would not change that. Now you have to understand Israel's position before God. Israel was God's witnesses. They were God's witness, God's representative to the nations. You can read that in Isaiah 43. We don't have time to go to it now. But when they misrepresented God by dishonoring his name, God took it very seriously. That's what had happened back in Saul's time. And the Lord's name had never been cleared. In fact, there's a suggestion in the sixth verse that we read that the Gibeonites were not only blaming Saul for what had happened, they were blaming God. Because God's name had never been cleared. Listen to what they said. Let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. They were blaming God. God's name had to be cleared. This isn't the only time in Israel's history when God's name had to be cleared. When Nathan confronted David over his sin with Bathsheba, he said to him, By this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. And when David is confessing his sin in Psalm 51, he says that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. In other words, Lord, when you judge me for this, when you deal with me for this, you are clear. Your name is clear. I have done this and I deserve to bear the consequences. Now, incidentally, both of those verses are quoted in Romans, which we don't have time to go into right now, other than to say that those who take the name of the Lord have a responsibility to uphold it. Those who take the name of the Lord have a responsibility before God to uphold it. 
So that, answer, that answers the question of why the matter of the Gibeonites needed to be dealt with. But it doesn't really answer the question of why David had to deal with it and not Saul. Well, quite simply, I think the answer to that question is because Saul didn't care to do it. Saul was not interested in God's glory. Saul was interested in his own glory, and he died for that. But God's name had never been cleared, and it fell to David, the leader of a people tasked with representing God to the nations to clear the Lord's name. But, but, did David accept this responsibility in the way that he should? Specifically, was it right for David to turn over the seven sons of the Gibeonites? That's our second question that we want to consider. Well, clearly something had to be done about the broken covenant with the Gibeonites. But was it for the Gibeonites to decide what that should be? Was it for the Gibeonites to decide what that should be? Nowhere here do we read of David inquiring of the Lord about how this matter should be dealt with. It kind of makes you wonder what it was about the Gibeonites that made them lose their head or made Israel lose their head every time they came along. When it came to making a covenant with the Gibeonites, they didn't inquire of the Lord. When Joshua was confronted with the question of making a covenant with the Gibeonites, he didn't inquire of the Lord. And when David was confronted with the problem of breaking the covenant with the Gibeonites, he never consulted the Lord. And both of those mistakes led to very sad consequences. Now, this is maybe a good time. I know that children have been sitting there patiently doing some coloring and so on. I'm going to get you to look up right now because remember Emily said that we were going to talk about what we should do in our lives when we face problems because you're younger, you're kids, but you have problems too, don't you? You have difficulties, maybe things you don't know what to do about, maybe a problem with one of your friends, maybe a a problem in your family, something that you're worried about, a fear that you have. Now, what do you do about that? Do you do what Joshua and David made the mistake and just rush ahead and just try to figure it all out on your own? Or here's another way. You can get on your knees and say, Lord, I have a problem, and I don't know what to do about it. Would you help me? And if you do that now as a child, and you continue to do that all through life, God will bring rich blessing into your life. How important it is to do that. Well, David was the king, and it was his responsibility. It was his responsibility to apply the law of God to this situation. And to look for the Lord for wisdom as to how to make this right. It wasn't for him to, to go to a vindictive and a wounded people who were wholly unable to apply God's law to this situation and just sort of relegate it to them, just kind of throw it over to them to fix this. For God's law did not authorize putting children to death for the sake of their fathers. We have that in Deuteronomy 24. And God did not authorize letting bodies remain hanging on a tree. We have that in Deuteronomy 21. The Gibeonites weren't able to apply the law, the, the law of God to the situation. David was able to do that, and he didn't do it. And I believe that this was a distinct failure on the part of David. And I think that there is a lesson for us in this as well. The Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians 
in 1 Corinthians 6, he said, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Now, there are difficult decisions to make in life, and it's tempting to let others make those decisions for you. But when God gives you the responsibility to deal with a problem, whether that problem is of your own making or not, you dare not cede that responsibility to others that are less equipped to deal with it. It's been my experience in life, in business, that those that take leadership, that those that move into leadership positions do so because they are willing to make decisions that other people are not willing to make. People that move into leadership are those that make decisions, quite frankly, that others are unwilling to make. And who is better able to make decisions than a person that fears the Lord and trembles at his word? Church, let's realize our responsibility in this world. Let's not cede our our responsibility to make decisions to those that are not qualified to make them. Now, to David's credit, there was one good decision he made here, and it's in verse 7. We read, but the, but the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, Saul's son Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. Now, just let me clarify one thing, because there's, if you read the list of the seven sons that were hung up, there's the reference to a Mephibosheth, and that could be confusing, right? There, are, there were two Mephibosheths. There was Mephibosheth, the son of Rizpah, and there was Mephibosheth, the son of of Jonathan, and David spared Jonathan for his oath's sake. Now, David could have felt constrained to break one covenant for the sake of another. He could have felt constrained to break his covenant with, with uh, Mephibosheth in order to keep this other covenant. And God, I believe, never calls us to break one covenant in order to keep another. Never sacrifice one duty for another. We have responsibilities at home, We have responsibilities at work and at school, and we have responsibilities in the church and other other spheres as well. And you will find yourself unable to really truly honor God in one sphere of life if you are dishonoring him in another. So we can't break one covenant in order to keep another. But let's go back to this. Why do you think it was that David let the Gibeonites decide on the remedy for Saul's covenant-breaking? Why did he do that? And I don't know the answer for sure, but I want to suggest that we are most inclined to leave decisions to others when we perceive that the outcome doesn't personally affect us. David just wanted an end to the famine. And he knew the Gibeonites wouldn't blame him. There would be no blowback on him for this. He had nothing to do with it. So whatever they required of Saul's family was really of little consequence. In fact, in fact... Public blowback on Saul's family, he could have reasoned, would actually help to shift the responsibility for the famine off of his kingdom and onto Saul's where it truly belonged. That may have been David's reasoning. But while David was not, here's the problem with that, while David was not guilty of breaking the covenant with the Gibeonites, he and the people may have been guilty of indifference 
concerning their corporate responsibility to uphold the glory of the Lord among the nations. I'm going to say that again. Well, David may not have been responsible, was not responsibility for breaking the covenant with the Gibeonites. He and the people may have been guilty concerning indifference towards their corporate responsibility to uphold the glory of the Lord among the nations. Now, what do you suppose would have happened if rather than David ceding this to the, this decision to the Gibeonites, he had gone to the Lord in the same way that Daniel does in Daniel 9? What if he had said, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, Forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because of your city and your people are called by your name. What if he had invoked the name that had been despised by this covenant breaking to appeal to God? What if he had come as Daniel had come? If David had accepted responsibility for the state of Israel and had been humbled over how the Lord's name had been dishonored, perhaps all of this could have been avoided. But if that attitude was lacking in David, it was not lacking in Rizpah. And I think Rizpah here is the hero of this story. I think it's Rizpah's actions that brought an end to this famine. David's failure to take responsibility had made her a victim. She had had to endure having her sons taken away from her and hung And if I had been her, I might have said, does David think that he can put the responsibility for this famine on my sons? They had nothing, nothing to do with this. Does he imagine that God is going to absolve Israel of responsibility and take away the famine by shifting the blame onto my innocent sons? But she doesn't say this. In fact, we don't read that she said anything. All we read of is what she did. And what she did set in motion that which brought an end to this famine. Verse 10, Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. She was helpless to do anything about the execution of her sons, but she, could, but she was not helpless to preserve their bodies from being torn apart by beasts and by birds. She couldn't save their lives, but she could honor their memory and ensure that they did not die in vain. And it worked. When David saw it, he was motivated to do what needed to be done in order to end the famine, and that was to bury the bones of Saul and Jonathan and these seven men. Well, you say, now why would that be what ends the famine? And I think the answer is because it ended a pattern of blame shifting and brought David to to a place where he recognized his responsibility before the Lord for Israel's witness among the nations. Rizpah's actions ended a pattern of blame shifting. And it brought David to a place where he recognized his responsibility before the Lord for Israel's witness among the nations. Now all of this, all of this, brothers and sisters, is a word to us as a church. 
Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.15, the church is the pillar and the buttress of truth. Well, how's that going for us? How are we doing with that? Every time we turn around, we hear of scandal and unfaithfulness in the church. But what is our reaction? Do we say, well, that's, that's not us. That, that's, them. that's them down the street. We're not responsible. Do we gossip and cluck our tongues at the sins of others in the church? Will we absolve ourselves of our own collective failure to represent Christ in the world as he has called us to do? Are we puffed up? by our own perceived faithfulness? Do we use the faults of others to exalt ourselves and make a spectacle of our own piety? This will bring famine on us. And when the Spirit of God is convicting us of coldness in our hearts towards him, we must not try to let ourselves off the hook by pointing to the faults of others in the church. And if things arise in the church that are a public dishonor to the name of the Lord, then we must be diligent to clear the Lord's name of those things. And that is one of the reasons, sadly, why from time to time we must practice church discipline. First of all, for the purpose of disassociating the Lord's name from that which dishonors it, and secondly, with a view to restoration of the erring brother or sister. When the Corinthians put a wicked person out of the church, the Apostle Paul said to them in 2 Corinthians 7 and 11, For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication in all things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. We don't hear, well, boy, I was really bad what that brother did. I'm sure glad that wasn't. No, there was sorrow over the state of soul that allowed such a thing to happen. And in time, the brother was restored. Let's never forget that we bear the name of Christ to the world. Let's not let ourselves off the hook for failure in this, but adopt the attitude of Daniel, the attitude of Rizpah. Well, We've talked about a responsibility of those who rule in the fear of God to accept responsibility for certain problems inherited from a previous generation. But those who rule in the fear of God have to do something else as well. They must release control to the next generation for, for certain problems that God has not equipped them to deal with. And that takes us to our last question, which we will consider very quickly now. What is the significance of David's close call with this second-generation giant? Well, in verses 15 to 22 of our chapter, we read about the slaying of four Philistine giants. Ishbibinab, easy for me to say. Ishbibinab, who was killed by Abishai. Saph, who was killed by Sibachai. Goliath the Gittite who was killed by Elhanan, not to be confused with the Goliath that David killed many years earlier. Um, And then an unnamed 12-fingered, 12-toed giant that was killed by Jonathan. Now, we don't have time, a lot of time to spend on this, but what do all these giants have in common? What they have in common is that they were descendants of giants in Gath. Let's call them, as we said, next-generation giants. 
And what do the men that killed these giants all have in common? At least three of them. I think four, but at least three. Three times we read the son of. Abishai, the son of. Elhanah, the son of. Jonathan, the son of. Let's call them second-generation warriors. There's a lesson here. God uses second-generation warriors to slay second-generation giants. God uses second-generation warriors to slay second-generation giants. And what happened when David, a first-generation warrior, tried to fight a second-generation giant? He was almost killed, and that would have quenched the lamp of Israel. Why? Because second-generation giants have second-generation swords. Remember we read that Ishbibinob had a new sword. It was not like the swords that David was fighting against. It was a new sword, and it, it was different. And God had equipped the new generation, Abishai, he had equipped him to deal with that sword. Have you ever been overwhelmed by the complexity of issues in this life, and you just wished that you could bring back a godly man or woman from the past so that you could have just 10 minutes, just 10 minutes to consult with them. If only I could have 10 minutes with Kelvin. If only I could have just 10 minutes with my grandfather. He would know. He would know what to do about this situation that I'm facing now. But is that true? Is that really true? God equipped them to deal with the issues that were present in their day to serve their generation, and then pass on. We can't borrow their tactics to fight the giants of this day. We have the same sword, yes. We have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word. It will never change. But, but, we, in this generation, and I'm going to speak particularly to you younger ones, you have to learn to wield that sword in the power of the Spirit to fight second-generation giants. We can't borrow their tactics. We are to follow their faith. We have that in Hebrew. We're to, Hebrews were to follow their faith, not to borrow their techniques. You can't stand on their shoulders and just parrot their words. You have to make their God your God and seek after him and pursue him with a passion that they possessed. And through you, God will slay next-generation giants wielding next-generation swords. To those in leadership, I want to say this. Let's remember that we must serve our generation and then pass on. But before we do, let us pass the baton faithfully to the next generation. There comes a time when we have to push the next generation forward, out in front, and encourage them from behind. Don't cling white-knuckled to your position of leadership, thinking that without you, the church will fail. That's a mistake. But rather, joyfully embrace the task of passing control into the hands of the next generation and removing obstacles, any obstacles that may trip them up. This may require a warm word of encouragement from time to time. It may require a heartfelt apology. Or taking the risk, taking a risk to give them a job that you might be able, at least now, to do better than them and that they might mess up on. We have to pass the baton. And young men, I'm going to particularly address you. I charge you, 
open up your hand and take that baton. And don't you dare drop it. For there are next generations coming and it is for you to fight them. Open up your hand, accept that baton, and don't drop it. To quote the words of John McCray, to take up our quarrel with, with the foe, to you from failing hands we throw the torch, be yours to hold it high. There is a foe, there is a quarrel. It's not the one that John McCray was referring to, not a battle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Did we in our own strength confide? Our strivings would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Thus to ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he, the Lord of hosts, his name. From age to age, the same. And he must win the battle. Each Sunday we come to the Lord's table and the Lord prepares us for re-engaging in the battle by reminding us that we belong to him and that he belongs to us. And he invites us to his table to partake of symbols of his body and his blood that remind us that we are his family his body on earth, inseparably, inseparably connected to our living head in heaven. And that gives us the strength to face another week. But before we do, before we come to the Lord's table, can I ask you a question? Can you honestly say, can you honestly say, I am his and he is mine? If you can't, then I point you to the cross. I point you to the cross where Jesus bore the curse of sin and hung there. I point you to the empty tomb from which he rose victorious over the grave. I point you to the right hand of God where he sits in power and authority and from where he offers you forgiveness and adoption. He calls you this morning. He says, whoever comes to me, I will never I will never cast out. So come, let's pray. God, our Father, you have called us as your people to lead, to rule in the fear of God, to lead a nation that is in darkness into the light, to lead those that are in darkness into the light. But we can only lead, Lord, to the degree that we are led by you. So here is our prayer. Lead on, O King Eternal. We follow not with fears, for gladness breaks like morning wherever your face appears. Your cross is lifted over us. We journey in its light. The crown awaits the conquest. Lead on, lead on, O God of might. Amen. Let's come to the Lord's table. This message has been brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share this content, but do not charge for it or alter it in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. For more resources, please visit ezrainstitute.ca.